It's Talkback Gardening on ABC Radio Adelaide and ABC Radio Riverland this morning. Thank you so much for your company. The Gumboot Gardener, though, is away, a bit like Deb Tribe. Deb Tribe's on holidays, which is why I'm here, and uh, uh, John Lamb is also having a little bit of a break. So who have we got today? Well, none other than Brett Draper. Good morning, Brett. Good morning, Lee. Pleasure to be here. And it's great to have you on board. It's two years since you've been in the studio, you were saying Yeah, earlier. just about two years, Lee. Time has flown by. It absolutely has. Well, it is a pleasure to have you back because you are a man who knows his stuff, Brett Draper, and if anyone can slip into John Lamb's shoes, it is you. So looking forward to the next hour and a half. Um, and if you don't know Brett, I'm sure you, if you, if you listen to this program, you would know Brett. But Brett um, runs uh, a, a garden centre in Metropolitan Adelaide uh, during the week and also plays a very important role with the Royal Agricultural and Horticultural Society. Brett, tell us what you do there. Absolutely, Lee. Well, I'm part of the Horticulture Committee. I'm the Deputy Chair of the committee and and the committee work every year as they Mm. do um, tirelessly to put together a horticultural display and of course this year sadly for the second year in a row it had to be cancelled so it is one of those things I'm afraid but let's look forward to 2022. Gosh that's all we can do it was so bitterly disappointing Brett that the Royal Show was cancelled for a second year and and I've got to say the horticultural displays at the show have always been a highlight. So thank you so much for the work that you do with that. It is magnificent what is put on at the Royal every year. Well, look, our team, our, our committee, which are all volunteers, by the way, just love doing what we do. And we love to be able to showcase the best of what South Australia has to offer, both from the horticulture and the nursery side and, of course, the agricultural side as well. And that comes through in spades. So bring on 2022. Let's see the Royal Adelaide show uh, back to full speed. Brett, we've got our first caller already, and it's Jennifer from Parafield Gardens. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, Brett. I have two questions to ask you about my grapes. I have five um, different uh, grape vines growing in my garden, and I've just one is: do I need to clip my black sultana back? And the other is about spraying. A friend from Renmark told me to spray every two weeks with. Um, um, <laughs> with um, a, a copper sulfate, right, mm-hmm. and which I've done this morning, and that's uh, and when he explained to me, he told me I should spray before it rains, and I couldn't believe it. I thought you'd spray after it rains. Anyway, I've done it this morning, and. I get down to my black sultana that my friend Rosa gave me a cutting for yeah. um, when we first came here, and she told me that I, I pruned it myself for the first time, and Rosa told me to leave six buds and then snip. So I went yes, over the that's whole right. black yep. sultana and did that, mm-hmm. and there is so, and because I've been spraying it this morning, there's so much growth down there, so many um, uh, um, baby grapes growing, but there are long shoots with baby grapes on and long shoots with nothing on. Yes. And it yep. looks to me like there'd be too much growth there to ever let the sun get in. And, and so should I snip 
That... Those long shoots with nothing on, or what's the go? Yeah, Jennifer, that's probably a good idea if it's put lots and lots of new fresh growth on to allow a better light and also to allow better air movement um, in and around the plant. Um, it might be a good idea to trim back some of that long, whippy growth that's there. Um, obviously, um, you've, you've done the right thing earlier. You've pruned it back um, appropriately to make sure that you get good fruit set, which it sounds like that you've got. But the more important thing will be to make sure that you've got plenty of air movement and plenty of light in there. And now, in terms of the copper sulphate, I, I assume you've been given that advice um, to avoid uh, mildews and those type of things. Yes. Yeah. If you haven't had a lot of mildew um, issues in the past, um, you, you may need to just be careful that you don't overspray. Um, um, you, you really probably shouldn't spray for the sake of spraying. Maybe just observe what's going on um, and, um, and keep a close eye on it. But your, the information in terms of spraying before rain is actually correct because you need to get it on uh, when it's on a fine day um, and allow it to, to, to actually coat the plant and then protect the plant. But there's no point spraying religiously if you haven't had a problem, if that makes sense. Okay, that sounds good. Now, cutting, cutting back, do I... See, what I did was I went down six um, buds on every, um, every, every, you know... Yeah, on every... On a, on every... that was there. And yep. I thought, well, maybe I did that too much. Did I? Should well, I have done well, it down... Well, well, no, I mean, it sounds like it's actually growing really well. I think lots of people would be really, really keen for, um, if they could actually have um, a grapevine looking and fruiting as much as what yours is doing. So I think you've done the right thing there. Good on you, Jennifer. Thank you for your call and hope that helps. And Brett, they're lining up. Uh, Joyce Incock's got his... <laughs> the phone's running off the hook on the other side of the glass here. They are coming in thick and fast. So let's go to another one now. Dennis has called in from uh, Gawler. Hello, Dennis. Good morning. What's your morning, question Brett. for Brett this morning, Dennis? Brett, I have a fig tree uh, and it's uh, got lots of branches, but yep. they uh, so many of them are covered in what I think is some sort of scale. Right. Uh, the, the, the scale are fairly big. They they seem to be about all oh, three in a centre or, or three millimetres mm-hmm. wide, and, and if you press them, they all squirt out. Well, it all comes out red, like ready orangey sort of colour. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Yes, Dennis, have you seen yep. have you seen ants on this on the fig as well? Are there ants? No, I haven't. You I haven't? haven't. Okay. But, but these these limbs or twigs or branches are um, just covered in it. Yeah. Well, look that. The, I had some last year and I cut them all off, but I don't remember this year that's just too many. Yeah, well, look, if, if the scale is on the um, actual branches um, and sometimes on the back of the leaves, if they scrape off quite easily um, with your, your fingernail or, or if you squish them and they are that sort of orangey-reddy colour inside, yeah. it it usually indicates, um, well, it, obviously, that it, that it is a scale that's on there. Mm. Um, ants often farm the scale. That's why I was asking whether you yeah. have seen any ants on the plant. Because they they secrete a honeydew, which is, is sweet, mm-hmm. ants love it. So they move them from plant to plant and they move them around because that's just that's just nature but in terms of controlling them the best thing to control your scale with is an oil-based spray so a horticultural oil something like pestor or echo oil and the important thing is with your oil you've got to get a really really good covering over the scale because it works by suffocating and that's how it actually kills them 
Um, so you need to spray thoroughly um, on the branches, on the back of the leaves, wherever they might be. Um, once you've done that, probably wait maybe, say, two two weeks. And then if you see any further activity or if you touch any of them and they're still squishy inside, if that makes sense, um, I would then give it a follow-up spray. But that should control them for you and, um, and hopefully um, your fig tree will be very happy. It's not necessary to spray the whole tree with something. It's just where these are. That's where right, where they are. But just be aware that they, they, they do get moved around, so make sure you have a thorough, a thorough look. But it is important that you do um, actually spray them to the point of saturation to cover them properly. Good on you, Dennis. Hope that helps with your fig tree, getting that scale under control. Well, next question, Brett's about rhubarb. Pam is on the line from Tanunda up in the Barossa. Good morning to you, Pam. Oh, hello. Good morning. Um, I've got two rhubarb plants and they've both started to flower and it seems like they're taking the energy out of the plant. Um, is this normal? Um, yeah, well, it, it, it can be. Well, they do flower. I mean, obviously all plants over time do flower, but yes, it will be taking energy um, away from the, the actual plant themselves. How long have you had them in the ground for, Pam? Oh, nearly eight years. Nearly eight years. Are they nice big crowns that are there? Are they been growing happily and healthily up until this point? Yes, they are. Yeah, they are. Okay. Look, um, um, obviously, you really want to grow them for the for the stalk, so you can harvest them, and the flowers will take away from the actual plant that's there. So, um, it, probably the best thing to do would be actually to remove them. Um, when was the last time that you actually fed your rhubarb? Oh, probably a year ago. Probably a year ago. It might be a good idea maybe to give it a bit of a feed too. They're hungry, aren't they? They are hungry, Mm. absolutely. Um, It's probably saying I'm a little bit stressed there, hence why it's gone into flower production mode um, rather than into actually then producing more foliage. So a really good thing to do, they they do like quite a bit of organic matter, so maybe even work in some um, well-rotted cow manure or one of those organic matters or even a compost um, in around the soil. Um, and um, and you'll find that that should really kick it along. Good on you, Pam. Okay. Hope that helps. Thank you. Good on you, Pam from Tanunda there. And uh, uh, rhubarb is quite hungry, isn't it, Brett? It, it does need quite a bit of extra nutrient. How often should you feed rhubarb? Well, ideally, I mean, with, with lots of leafy plants, you should feed them regularly if you can. So, um, What's regularly? Well, at, at least three or four times throughout the year. Right. Um, but... Um, often if you feed plants a little and often, so if, even if you do it, um, you know, sort of every couple of months, as yeah. long as you give them a little bit of feed to kick them along, they'll be very, very happy. But, um, I mean, I know life's very busy and not everyone remembers to feed things when they can, but just whenever you can, if you're able to give them some organic matter and a little bit of organic fertiliser, they'll be very happy. I'll tell you what, I've got some friends who live at Bull Creek and they have got um, a, a, a rhubarb patch to die for and it's uh, always dug in with um, sheep manure off the property and apparently the rhubarb love it and they go berserk. Yeah, animal animal manures in the soil are really, really good for your rhubarb. Yeah. Let's keep going with the calls this morning, Brett. Uh, Sue is on the line from Henley Beach. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. What's your question for Brett? Well, I've just built this fairly large raised bed, which I'm going to convert into a wicking bed. And I, it's against a wall, mm-hmm. and I quite like. I was thinking I could espalier something like an orange, right? But my question is that I, my the aspect might be a bit wrong because it'll get sun during summer, but it won't get a lot of sun in winter. So, um, is an orange a good choice? I'd like something evergreen um, because I want to hide the wall a bit, right? Is an orange a good 
choice. Will that cope with not? It'll get a bit of morning sun, but not a lot of sun in winter. Okay, so it's not going to it's not going to be totally shaded. It'll just get minimal sun during the winter months. Is... Yes. Yeah. Well, look, an orange would probably be okay in in that aspect. And really, when you've got a situation like that, no matter what plant you put in there, if it's not going to get as much sun during the winter months, it's not going to be as happy and as healthy as it will be in the months where it's going to get lots of sun. But the, the idea will be that if you can keep the plant as happy and as healthy as possible and particularly make sure in autumn prior to um, um, the onset of winter that you actually feed it and make sure it's in really healthy condition, it'll often carry um, through that period of time. Now, if it's going to get a bit of morning sun during winter, I think that's still going to be fine, to be honest. Beautiful. So the next bit is, is it, it, it's not too hard to espalier citrus. I've not done that before. I've done other stone fruit. Yeah, no, look, it's it's not. Um, uh, in fact, um, probably out of a lot of your fruit trees, they're probably one of the, not necessarily easiest, but but certainly it's mm. relatively straightforward, um, mm. often because they've got um, good um, framework to work from. So in terms of being able to espalier them, often, and if you select a tree which has got a, an, an, a, you know, a nice straight trunk, but it's got a good framework from there, you can then actually train the laterals out um, into whatever... Uh, spacing that you might have. Um, um, I assume you're going to use some cables or some wire or is it a yeah, six, yeah. some lattice or yeah. something like that? I'll do something like that. Yeah. And yeah. The, the other question is, you know, when you, you buy a plant, people say don't put it straight into a huge pot. Pot it up. But I have quite a huge um, raised bed. Should I be putting it into, the, into that inner pot for a while and then taking it out of the pot or just whack it in? And if I whack it in, what depth of soil should I put? So what what depth is your raised bed that's there? Well, it's enormously high and I'm going to put some bricks in the bottom because I don't really want to put that much soil in it. So it could be any depth um, that works. At right. the moment, it's 80, 85 centimetres high. So it's, <laughs> it's very high. Yeah, it is, it is quite high. The other thing you could look at doing initially is you can always always put some organic matter, some mulch or, or, or even some straw or something in the bottom as well. That will actually break down over time, but it will mm. mean that you don't initially have to put as much soil in there. But in terms of your citrus that you're planting in there, that should be okay. In fact, I will be planting that directly in there. I wouldn't be worrying about mm. planting that into something smaller before you move that on um, because you really don't want to set it back. I mean, the, the idea is that you're going to put it straight into that and then actually start to train it onto the, the wires that you've actually got there. Um, so that will be fine to plant directly in there. Good on you Sue, hope that helps. And uh, the calls keep coming in Brett, so we'll keep ploughing through them. Park is on the line now from Yankalilla. G'day Park. Yeah, morning. Look, the problem is uh, black ophid, ants all over the place, uh, two nectar and two peach, and I've sprayed them four times at the recommended rate of 10 mils to a litre, and they've got fatter and spread wider. Uh, so this this is the the uh, uh, aphids on your peach tree, is it? Uh, on a black aphid, on yeah, your stone fruit. Look, look, I've got them here looking at them now, running around on a leaf. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the next generation as Happy well. Happy aphids, yeah, the little the little <laughs> devils that are on there. Um, can I ask you, part what you actually sprayed them with? Yeah, I've got it here. Echo oil. You've echo actually oil. you've actually used echo oil, okay? And it was a concentrate that you made up, was it? And you just yeah, I've got the concentrate, and I just mixed that. That says. Um, well, it says for citrus and the garden centre said use that recommendation. Okay, that's fine. I just wanted to make sure that you'd, you'd mixed it to the correct amount that's there. Look, there's lots and lots of aphids out there and there's lots, uh, particularly on peaches, um, uh, uh, those black aphids at the moment, and they're on that, all on the new uh, very tips of the actual plants themselves. Um, look, you're, you're 
your horticultural oils like eco oil will actually control them. The, the challenge you've got is you've got multiple populations, obviously, that, that keep breeding that are on there. The important thing is that when you spray them, that you spray them really thoroughly and that you actually follow it up in about 10 to 14 days. And you might need to do that um, maybe up to three times to actually keep them um, under control. Well, the, I'm at four already. You're at four already. And, then I'd maybe suggest, mate, with the weather that's going on with you when you've sprayed it, whether it may have um, washed off the effectiveness with rain that we might have had or if it was windy, for instance, you may not have got as, as um, um, good as coverage as what you actually may have needed to get on there, if that makes sense. Yeah, fair it's, enough, though, but can I double up the dose of oil? Does that make any difference? No, look, it's, it's really not going to give you any any more um, um, effectiveness, if you like. Um, the the diet... The recommended rate that you dilute on there would be normally enough to control them because they're soft-bodied and they don't like the volatility of the oil. So once you get it on them, that usually does does actually the job. What you could do if you wanted to to change a product is maybe look at getting something um, one of your potassium-based soaps, so sold as things like Natra soap, for instance. They actually work really well. They're again, and they're an organic product. Um, but if you're having trouble with the oil not necessarily controlling them, maybe try getting some Natra soap and, a tri- uh, and apply that to the tips. It's that time of the year isn't it? There's lots going on in the garden and, and my experience at home each year is um, I've got quite a few Japanese maples in my garden and it seems really random but again this year um, as they're coming out into leaf at the moment just one of my trees, just one, is absolutely smothered in aphids. Now mm. what, what goes on? Yeah, well, look, it, it, it can be a number of things, um, Lee. Now, so aphids um, are opportunists, so they, they like to, to choose uh, nice, soft, sappy growth, which they can mm. stick their little beaks into to suck all the little sap, all the energy out of the plant them, itself. And often people say, look, I've got lots of, of the same plant, but they only mm. affect one plant maybe or only a, a certain number of plants. And there's a couple of things that can be going on. One of them can be environmental factors. Mm. So they don't like exposure to too much wind or too much sun. They like nice, warm, protected sort of situations. They also like or they can choose a plant which might not be as quite as happy as all the others. So if one of the trees miss some, some fertiliser or is a little bit stressed for some reason, they'll tend to target oh, plants that are a little bit stressed. Okay. Um, and then on the other side of it, they can just randomly choose whatever plant they like <laughs> the look of, to be honest. So we are seeing lots of aphids building up. I've had lots of people during the week come into the garden centre um, in a, with a sample in a plastic bag with some aphids or a photo on their, on their phone. Um, and uh, mainly on roses that we've, we've seen at the moment coming through. And the important thing is that if you do see aphids that are on there, I guess what to do. And, and, and I always bring it back to how bad is the problem? If there's mm. just three or four um, on, the, on, the, on a tip, then probably you don't really need to do anything. But if the tip's absolutely covered or smothered in, in aphids yeah, and you this can't, tree actually, is. it is, yeah. it is smothered. I've been spraying them off with a hose. And it, Do you think I'll win that way or will I have to get more serious? Well, look, you, 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 if you are persistent, yes, you will, because there are lots of natural predators um, out there that will actually help control the aphids. But those natural predators and the numbers of those natural predators will always lag behind the population of the aphids that are there. So they'll be at least three or four weeks behind. So if you're patient and you continue to squirt them off, that will be able to control them. If you're not patient, as many people are not as patient, um, if you do get a horticultural oil like pesto or echo oil, just spray the tips that are affected and that will help to keep those numbers under control and then allow the beneficial hoverflies and lacewings 
when which are the their natural predators and even ladybirds they're a great food source for ladybirds mm. to come in and actually then clean them up for you and the way that you can tell most aphids that you find on a lot of plants apart from the black aphid that you see on on stone fruit are generally sort of are a greeny color normally and if you've had a natural predator like a um, the parasitic wasp come in you'll see all of these if you like dried skeletal Mm. shapes, if you like, which have gone brown on the tips. And that means that the, the parasitic wasp has come along and actually done its job. Ah, it's actually attacked okay. the aphids and it's just left their exoskeleton, if you like, there on the on the tips of the plant. And that's a good thing. Excellent. So if they're green and they're moving, they're still alive. But if they're brown and they're not moving, <laughs> the natural predators have done their job. Really good to hear. Thank you so much for the advice, Brett. Let's go back to the calls now. Um, Rick is on the line from Old Norlunga. Good morning to you, Rick. Good morning. My problem is with the lily pilly. We've got a lovely, lovely tall. But in the last few weeks, on the leaves, there seems to be a little bubble of something or other, they're red, and it just takes over the leaf. Oh, yes. And it's really gone berserk in the bottom part of the tree. Yep. Now, Rick, are these little, are these little pimples or bumps in the actual leaf itself? Yes. Yeah, they are. So, look, li- lily pillies are affected, um, and and um, m- this relates to many of the uh, original varieties of lily pillies, but they are affected by a little pest called psyllid. Now, the psyllid um, uh, lays eggs um, on the back of the leaves, um, and as a result of that, you get these indentations or pimples that actually appear on the leaf, and it generally yep. always happens on the new growth. So the new growth of, of most lily pillies is generally a, um, a reddy sort of colour, and then it matures to a green. But um, it, you, it, you normally see it on that reddier or that red colour um, uh, of, of the new foliage. Um, and so those, those little psyllids um, have been able to um, uh, lay eggs, and they're developing, if you like, in, in the back of the actual leaf. Now, they really actually don't do much harm to the plant other than they disfigure the, the actual um uh, foliage um, that's on the on the plant themselves, yeah. um, and they can be a little bit hard to control. Now um, there is um, um, a, a product on the market, a systemic product on the market, um, um, with the active ingredient which is imidacloprid, and it's it's sold as things like Confidor or, or Conquer and, and those type of things. But that's really the only product on the market that's successful in controlling them. But you need to be aware, however. Um, that those particular products um, do affect bees and they do affect pollinating insects. So if your lily pilly is in flower or likely to flower in the next sort of, you know, six to eight weeks, there is the potential where that if you do apply this product that you could actually knock off of um, those bees and pollinating insects that might actually come to the flowers of those plants. Right. So um, what, would, what would happen if I just got out the secateurs and trimmed them? Well, that's what most people... Yeah, cut them off. Yeah, Rick, that's what most people do, to be honest. In fact, in, in the garden centre where I work, we've got some large established lily pillies which we actually uh, prune into a, a large cone shape. Um, and they actually have lots of psyllids in them at the moment. We, we deliberately haven't actually sprayed them because we've had this massive population of ladybirds and ladybird larvae, which as a result have laid um, eggs in there and have actually cleaned them up for us. And then they've gone on to control any other pests that we might have had in the garden centre. And then right. once the actual lily pilly grows um, through, we actually just cut that off. 
Um, and because the reality is when the warmer weather hits us, a lot of these little insects don't survive anyway. So if you just wait for it to grow through, by the time we reach summer, um, you'll have lovely fresh growth there and it will be fine and ready to go. There you go, Rick. Okay. So do, but do, I, so do I cut the red ones off now? You could, if if you need to, absolutely, because you, you're only going to be tip pruning them. So um, you you could actually prune them right now. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate your call this morning. Let's go to McGill now, and John's on the line, Brett. And I think it's a issue with a Washington Naval. Good morning, John. Oh, good morning, Kruger and Lee. Uh, I've got a Washington Naval, which has had prolific amount of, of fruit on it, but all the fruit itself is smothered with a black soot. Mm. Now, it hasn't spread to the Valencia, which is near. Uh, what's the problem? Okay, John, it sounds like at some stage you've had a sap-sucking insect and more than likely scale on your citrus at some stage. So the sooty mould is a, 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 a fungal infection or a bacterial infection that comes through as a result of the honeydew from the sap-sucking insect, which has been allowed to um, drip down, if you like, onto the the fruit. Um, And then it moves in um, and gives this black substance, if you like, on the actual actual fruit. And it can happen on the the branches and the back of the leaves as well. Have you had a good look at the plant? Have you seen any scale on the plant at all? It could also be white fly or any other pest that might be on there. Nothing else at all. No, definitely no scale or... White fly, but I certainly got white fly on my roses, which I squirt off. Yeah, well, look. At some stage, it sounds like you have you have had something on there. And, and look, the only way to really control your your sooty mould that's on there is to con, um, control that sap sucking insect. So, look, I would, as a precaution, recommend that you get a horticultural oil, um, um, something like Echo Oil or Pest Oil, and actually spray the tree thoroughly um, on the branches and as much on the back of the leaves as possible, just to make sure there's um, you control anything that you. Or for instance, if you haven't seen them, but if there's something there it will control them and stop that from happening. What you'll find is with after regular rain or even um, with some watering, um, you'll find that the sooty mould will disappear. But if you control the sap-sucking insect, you'll control that stickiness and then that sooty mould will actually disappear. Good on you, John. Thank you for your call this morning and keep them coming over the program. one three hundred triple two eight nine one. We're almost up to the 9 o'clock news, Brett Draper, but I thought I'd just mention a couple of things off the text line. Uh, one caller says it's the worst year ever for psyllids. Uh, never seen so many, but uh, the texter says the honey eaters seem to be interested in them and uh, so not spraying as a consequence of that and, uh, and expecting the plants to grow through them. And uh, Jan Bear says, hi folks, I'd suggest it's a good, the good season's resulted in lush growth on roses and fruit trees, very attractive to aphids. Very much so, yeah. (laughs) It's a smorgasbord for them. And a quick question. Good morning. I live in Allgate. I planted ranunculus for the first time this year. They're blooming wonderfully, though they do fall over quite a bit. Do I need to lift them each year, says Nikki? Well, look, if, only if they're in a spot where you don't want um, or you want to plant something else during the summer months of the year because obviously the ranunculus will die down. But if they're in a permanent spot and you know where they're going to be, you can leave them in that spot and they'll come up again for you in autumn and flower beautifully again next spring. Good on you, Nikki from Allgate. There's some good advice for you. We have a special guest to introduce. We do, yes. This morning I thought it would be lovely to chat to Robin Powell. Now, Robin is a... 
Oh, gee, how can I exp- how can I even start? She is a wonderful plant authority when it comes to all th- all things plants, whether it is Mediterranean type plants or a little bit more unusual but hardy plants, but particularly climate compatible plants for South Australia. Um, uh, Robin has been in the industry for many many years, and her and her husband Ian run a lovely nursery in the Adelaide Hills, Mylar in the Adelaide Hills, Chapello Grove Nursery. It's beautiful. It's absolutely stunning, and I thought it would be really good to chat to Robin this morning um, um, around selecting plants and and sort of the right plants for the right conditions, and then then what sort of conditions you might have in terms of soil and then also maybe if we get a little bit of time on how to care for them as well. Um, but look, but I guess we might say, if Robin's there, we might say a very good morning to Robin. Good morning, Brett. Good morning, Robin. Um, and um, and maybe just explain that, that, that Robin, you are a really passionate sort of plant person. Um, you are a, a, a grower, a propagator, but you're also a, a retailer for retail customers as well as supplying to the landscape industry. So you've really immersed yourself within the industry um, and are able to offer very, very um, sound, practical, common sense advice on, on selecting the right plant um, for a particular place in your garden. That's right, Brett. Um, I've been in the industry for about uh, 45 years now. Um, I won't tell you how old I am. The, um, it, I think it's important, and I, I have a passion for gardening. I, it's just you know, um, what gets me through life, really, um, is plants, and it always has been ever since I was a young child. So um, I would like other people to get the same fascination and feeling of pleasure uh, from gardening as well and that's what I aim to do. So supply interesting plants. Uh, the reason we propagate a lot of our own is because the industry grows, um, how can I explain it, more in a fashion uh, aspect, um, changing all the time. Don't, don't give plants a chance to find out whether they do well in your environment before they're gone again. So we tend to propagate the things that we think are going to do well here. Um, a lot of Mediterranean climate plants because we live in a Mediterranean climate. Mm. Um, but there's also a lot of plants that if you add a bit of water or modify the environment a little bit, they will also do well here. So that's really what we try to do. Yeah, and, and many of the plants that you actually grow, Robin, you've actually got growing in and around your nursery, don't you? So um, We do. I must admit at the moment, Brett, it's in between the weeds, <laughs> like, like all gardeners. You know, so that's we, don't the year. we don't necessarily get to um, the jobs in the garden that we need to at the time we need to. And really that's one of the, the things about gardening is if you can get to the weeds when they're really little or get to the problems in your gardens before they become major problems, that's really half of the, um, how should we say, half the... Well, it's half the, it's ha- half, the, half the job of doing the gardening, you know, <laughs> and it makes it so that it's not a chore anymore. Absolutely. So observation is really important. Um, mind you, can, you can observe the weeds as well. You know, some of them are really quite pretty. It's just a pity they spread so much. Well, that's right, and particularly if you can get onto them before they set seed because you don't want to have all those seeds sitting in the soil as a seed bank ready to germinate for many yeah, years to come. definitely. <laughs> some things will actually last in the garden for like 10 years as a seed bank, so you do need to be... Um, persistence is, a, is the best thing with a lot of those sort of problems. Definitely, definitely. Now, Robin, um, I thought it would be good just to look at, um, because over the past 18, 
18 months, um, particularly in the nursery and garden industry, and, and the way people's lifestyles have changed in terms of um, their work habits um, and the hours that they work and not being able to travel, we're seeing many, many new people to gardening. So we've got many, many new gardeners out there. Um, and um, I'm sure you get lots of questions, as I do in the garden centre. Lots of people come in looking um, to put plants into their garden, but they really have... Um, a, a problem selecting plants and, 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 and the reason being is they don't necessarily know you know how things will uh, grow and establish and what sort of soil type that they might look uh, might take um, and, and what sort of aspect um, mm-hmm. and also what their ongoing water requirements um, and things might be um, um, but I guess the question is if someone's looking for a plant what's the sort of first question they should ask themselves is it something like you know um or how do i select that plant for that particular spot in the garden okay i i would suggest Brett, that it goes before that instead of before you actually go and select a plant actually look at where you want to put it look at what the aspect is um, so does it does it get sun all the day? Does it not get sun all day? Um, if it's in shade, what's the shade from? It makes a difference whether it's from a, a, a heavy conifer or whether it's from a building or a pergola. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's different degrees of shade if you like. What the soil's like? You know, actually dig your soil, get a shovel, and maybe that, maybe that's the first thing. Brett, is get some good tools. Um, yeah, well, and. Um, anyway, so, so, you know, dig your garden. Actually just turn the soil over, see what it's like. Um, if you're not sure how to read your soil, take some photos, take a few samples from different depths, um, dig a hole, tip a, tip a bit of water into the hole and see how quickly it goes through the soil um, or whether it runs off the soil. So the position you're putting the plant into is important. Um, then you have to start looking at the climatic conditions for the plants you want to grow and I really do get fed up with people saying oh we want it to grow quickly Um, if our children grew very quickly in two years we'd be worried now a plant will take the time it takes and if you want the end result then you have to give the plant time to do whatever it is that you want it to do Um, and Often the, the fast-growing plants, the things that respond very quickly to growth, are not necessarily long-lived or you have to keep cutting them back or to keep them looking tidy or something like that. So definitely a bit of local knowledge. Walk around the neighbourhood. See what else does well. doesn't matter if you don't know what it is. Take some photos, preferably with flowers or fruits, mm-hmm. um, so that they can... because that's what's often used for identification. And... Actually, just see what what looks good. You know, what you like, what sort of, and not necessarily the plant you, you like, but the look that you like. Um, if you're not sure of the plant, and I always advise people to go for things that are likely to succeed, but be prepared for something that doesn't quite succeed. Because no matter how much advice you get from the best people. Um, your situation is going to be slightly different to everybody else's. So, um, how can I put it? The failures that you get in the garden, let's hope they're not too many, but they will tell you as much about the plants in your garden in particular um, as, as success does. 
You're listening to Talkback Gardening this morning. Our special guest is Robin Power from Tupelo Grove Nursery up at Mylor in the Adelaide Hills and uh, Brett Draper, our expert today. Robin, you'll like this on the text line. Um, we're getting quite a few texts coming through on 0467922891. Anne from Flagstaff Hill says, Great nursery, Tupelo Grove. All plants we've bought have done uh, well in our garden and they're happy to give follow-up advice. So thanks very much, says Anne from Flagstaff Hill, Robin. Thank you very much, Anne. Yeah, um, and that's wonderful, Robin. And and so, look, once we've established or or, or got to the point where we know what sort of soil type that we've got and we've looked at that soil, um, is that important, um, for instance, um, is there a pH? Is the pH of the soil important as well? It can be for some plants. Most of our soils are within a range of about 6 to 8. Now, 6 being acid and, and 8 being alkaline. And... The pH of the soil can affect plant growth. The, if it's too far either way, either acid or alkaline, it will affect the, nu- the ability of the plants to absorb nutrients out of the soil. So getting your soil to be a, a, somewhere around the neutral, which is seven, is a really good idea if you want just the general garden. Mm-hmm. And so, Robin, um, then... You've, 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 you've now got your soil ready to go and, and you've had a little bit of a look around the neighbourhood and you've got a bit of an idea of what sort of plant and the, and, and the look that you would like to, um, to actually achieve. Um, if you go to a, a nursery or garden centre, what sort of things should you be looking for? Should you be looking for the biggest plant or should you be looking for the healthiest plant? Or um, No, not necessarily. Um, big is not always better. Some, a lot of things actually do better if you plant them as a smaller plant, but of course you need to get them at a size that is good for establishment. You know, you don't want them too small. If you haven't got enough roots on something, then they can take quite a while because surprisingly a plant actually grows more underground first than it does above ground. Um, if you don't have enough roots in the pot, then you will probably have to... Um, you know, planting is difficult because it, you haven't got enough. If you haven't got enough roots to hold the, the soil together as you plant it, mm-hmm. um, too many roots can be just as much a problem. That will depend a great deal on the plant itself. I deal a lot in perennials, and a lot of perennials because they are continually putting out roots um, on a seasonal basis, and because they. Um, are fairly shallow rooted and don't need tap roots to hold them up and all that sort of thing, then some of those things you can get away with being a bit more pot bound. But generally speaking, you would be looking for a plant that's just got a nice amount of roots in the, pl- in the pot. Right. And, and what sort of advice would you give if, if someone is, is then or has purchased a plant and is planting it in terms of feeding it? Do you, would you recommend feeding it straight away or is there a period where um, you might say let it settle in for a little bit of time? Or? Um, once again, I think that depends a little bit on your soil and what sort of fertiliser you're using. Um, an organic fertiliser will often require several weeks to break down in the soil and so also to some of the sulphated fertilisers. So... Um, what I usually suggest is you put a small amount on around the top of the plant and you water it in because you want it to wash over the roots. Um, as it breaks down, the, they will gradually release nutrients. Um, if you want something more immediate, then you need to go to the nitrated fertilisers, the, um, the ones that you can put into a water 
uh, mixed with water. Yeah, so, water a soluble on. type fertiliser. A soluble that you can type fertiliser, yep. yeah, but also nitrated fertilisers. Um, and these are fertilisers which the, uh, the nutrients that you want are in a nitrated form because nitrates are immediately available. Uh, they, they immediately dissolve in water. Now, they can be harder to find. So if you're, you've only got the general range of fertilisers, then just consider that they may take a little while to break down. But I also greatly suggest that people mulch their plants. So mulching... In principle, it's not to feed the plants so much, but it's to shade the soil, shade the roots, um, allow the roots to get established without being in a hot soil. Um, Hot soil can kill roots, so just put a bit of mulch around, enough to shade. You don't need a foot Mm -hmm. thick, um, but you do want soil... uh, you sorry, you do want a mulch, which is going to shade the soil. soil. I've shaded the soil with just a bare covering of... Um, straw before it's just to put a shadow on the soil and it, it, it can noticeably make a difference so it, it just helps if you like to stabilize the soil temperature that's there yes. and, and act as a bit yes. of a an insulation if you like to, to that's right make sure that your new plants have got the best head start yeah and uh, then that that also helps with the um how much water they require you've got a shaded soil that holds the water in then they're going to need less water. Mm. And actually, Robin, that was going to be my next question. Is it possible to give new plants too much water? Are sometimes people a little bit too kind in terms of, of watering when they're establishing new plants? It is. It's probably one of the things you, as a gardener you do need to learn. When you put a new plant in, it has all of its roots within what was originally the pot that it was in. So the smaller plants will dry out faster because it's got a smaller root system. Uh, larger, larger plants will dry out a little bit slower, but sometimes they've got a lot more foliage. So that also has an effect on how much foliage the plant has. But look at your plant and use your digital indicator, as in your finger, um, so that you actually use your finger... Dig down a little bit to where the roots, the level that the roots may be in the soil and just see what the, what's happening down there. Don't just water regardless because in the spring, which is a great time for getting plants in the ground, um, we can have cool temperatures and warm temperatures. We can have a bit of rain. Um, often as the season progresses, the smaller amounts of rain we get are not adequate to get in, especially if you've got a bit of a mulch across the top mm. of the soil. Sometimes it just wets the mulch. So you actually look at the soil underneath and consider, and, and look at your plant. You know, Is it responding with that amount of water? If you're really new to gardening, these things, things I think are important because after a while you get to know the look of a plant and without having to dig down and and see. But when you first start gardening, these are the skills you need to learn. Um, And they sound onerous, but they're not really. That's wonderful, wonderful common sense advice, Robin. Um, um, Just to to finish up, I just thought I'd just touch on, um, because the nursery industry um, has been busier than it's ever been before in the last 18 months, um, are we seeing shortages of certain plants out there or, 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 or are they, is it taking a little bit longer maybe for some of these plants to come through than what we'd normally expect? Uh, definitely, yes. There's a few things that always affect the, the nursery industry. I mean, last year when COVID hit and everybody was home and suddenly nurse, most nurseries' sales went up dramatically, so what they had planned on having for that year... Um, 
especially as far as fruit trees and that sort of thing go, um, it takes time to catch up on increased sales with that sort of thing because mm. some of those crops are like two or three years. Yeah, well, the reality so, is plants take time to grow, don't they? You, just, exactly you just can't right. flick a switch and, 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 and suddenly produce more. They do take no. a time to actually get established. That's right. And, of course, in our climate, um, I think COVID hit in, uh, what about March, wasn't it? So yes. end of summer, a lot of things, it's too late to propagate more. Um, you don't propagate them to have them ready uh, until later in the year. So it's not only the larger crops, it, it, the climate, uh, the climatic conditions at the time make a difference. Mm. Uh, we've got crops that we do, and if we miss the right time to grow it, well, we just don't have it that year. Yeah. So, so, so um, I, I guess you know, for, and then for people then, out there, Robin, that are, um, are wanting a particular plant and they can't find it just at the moment, I guess the key will be just to be patient. It will happen. There are... Um, uh, processes in place and nurseries are, are catching up and the plants will actually be available but it might not necessarily be exactly when actually people want them. It certainly is, Brett. <laughs> um, we, had, we were very busy early in the spring and I just couldn't believe it. Some of the things that people were asking for, which were summer perennials, and they're not even active. Active at that time, yeah. At that time of the year. So you've got to give the plants time to grow in their time, in their um, season. In their actual space, yeah. Yeah, well, that's well, look, right. Robin, it's been wonderful to chat to you this morning. You've provided us with some wonderful common sense, practical advice. Um, and uh, um, many, many new gardeners and experienced gardeners um, sometimes um, need that uh, information to make sure that they actually um, make the right decisions when actually planting and to take a breath and step back and just look at all those steps in terms of making sure they get the soil preparation right before they actually select that plant. You've given us some wonderful tips and we thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you, Brett. Robin Power from Tupelo Grove Nursery up at Mylor in the Adelaide Hills. And, Brett, we've had a number of texts about this along the way. Uh, one of our texters wants to know how to spell the name of the nursery, so I will. T-U-P-E-L-O, T-U-P-E-L-O, Tupelo Grove at Mylor. If you've never been there before, what a wonderful drive to go up to Mylor. It's a cracking little town to visit anyway, but uh, Tupelo Grove itself really is a destination, let alone a nursery, isn't it? Brett? It is. It's it's lovely to wander around, and you probably heard um, with Robin's call there in the background the birds in the yes. background, the wildlife and oh. the biodiversity that buzzes through the nursery while you're there is just spectacular. The little fairy wrens, and oh, it's just lovely. Louise is on the line from Pasadena. Good morning to you, Louise. Good morning. What's your question for Brett? Uh, we have a, an avocado tree that's recently dropped um, most of its leaves. It's been in the ground about two years and been sort of protected from wind. Got a lot of flower on it at present. Right. And, um, yeah, just when when did leaves. the leaves drop, Louise? Has it just been in the last about week two or weeks ago. about two weeks ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I actually noticed this a little bit in, a, in the garden centre as well. We had some avocado trees, but I, I was looking at what the possible cause was and I found that after we had some really strong winds just recently mm. um, uh, and some of them were quite cool winds and the winds that we mm. experienced in the garden centre is what caused a lot of leaf drop on there. Um, sometimes what you find is when you see leaf drop um, on plants, it generally ca- uh, indicates some sort of stress of some kind. So it can sometimes be whether um, the area or, or um, the soil that they're planted in is too wet, for instance, um, mm-hmm. or if there's been a, 
someone's been a little bit uh, heavy-handed with a fertiliser, for instance, that they may have applied. So generally there's some sort of trigger that causes that leaf drop. But um, Mm -hmm. has that occurred at all? Do you know whether the area Uh, is... Well, it is clay soil. We sort of dug a big... um you know, big area out when we when we put it in, mm-hmm. but the soil around that is clay. Um, Has anyone fertilised recently? Yeah. Okay. Look, well, I, I I would actually put it down then to to climatic conditions if that's the case, mm-hmm. because I was surprised mm-hmm. to see after that weather how many leaves I, we had on the ground from the mm-hmm. from the okay. um, avocado trees that were there. Um, mm-hmm. And um, has it still got some leaves on it? It hasn't lost them all, it's has still it? Got, it's still got some leaves on it. Um, they've got a little bit of brown on the tips. Yeah. Um, and But it's also, I noticed this morning, got new leaves coming out of the ends above the flowers. Yeah, terrific. So there's, there's new growth that's coming there. So um, when was the last time that it was fed? Because it's probably due now, as the soil's warming, um, to look at giving it um, um, one of those organic-based um, fruit-type um, fertilisers at the moment. Mm, I gave it some of that last weekend Terrific. and um, yep. some compost. Yep. And look, the other thing I would look at um, su- um, suggesting, Louise, is a seaweed uh, plant tonic. So um, you, uh, there's, there's several on the market, but one of those mm-hmm. ones that you mix into water and actually water into the root zone um, because okay. that will just help. If the plant's been stressed for whatever reason, um, that mm-hmm. will just help to strengthen the cell wall within the plant and make it a little bit more robust. It'll also help um, the microbes in the soil and help with the um, root development and healthy root development if you've got healthy roots means that ideally you will have a healthy tree and the healthier mm-hmm. the tree, the less susceptible it is to other weather events that might come through. Good on you, okay. Louise. Thank you very yep. much for your call. And, yeah, the weather can be really harsh on plants at this time of the year, Brett, does it? it can't because it, we, we sort of get these big fluctuations in temperature and winds. and We do, and, yeah. and, and spring can do that. You can have, as you know, you can have four seasons in one day. But yes. in, in the last couple of weeks, we've had some really, really big wind events. And, and subtropical plants like avocados, for instance, which normally um, don't like um, uh, wind in, in, in any sort of circumstance, but particularly when it's a cooler wind, and if you've got new fresh fresh growth that's on there, they can be very susceptible and, and it does actually mm. cause the leaf drop. I'm going to go to some text in a minute, but let's take our next call from Nick at uh, McGill. And I think a very important question here for you, Brett, um, from anyone who has pets and is passionate about gardening as well. Good morning, Nick. Yes, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Look, uh, I have a problem in the fact that uh, the area out the front of our house uh, would in some instances be described as a lawn, uh, but I choose to call it an ocean of weeds, (laughs) which I want to get rid of, but we have a dog that whenever it comes inside, it wants to lick its paws, Mm -hmm. which is quite understandable. So what can I spray which is dog safe? Okay, Nick, so are are you wanting to just control the weeds or are you wanting to spray everything that's out in that lawn, if you like, in inverted commas? I'd love to be able to have something which more resembles a lawn. So if I can at least in the first instance control the weeds, if I ultimately I can get rid of them, that would be ideal. So, But critically, it is uh, what is uh, safe in terms of the dog. Okay. Well, look, no, there's really no products on the market which are safe for a dog as such. When you Once you apply the product to um, the weeds or the area, whilst the leaf is wet, that is the danger point if that makes sense once the leaf has dried 
it really doesn't pose much risk to the environment, to you or your pet that's on there. So the idea is that you, if you're going to spray something on there to control the weed, now whether it's a selective broadleaf weedicide that's suitable for lawns or whether it is a non-selective product, whilst the actual leaf is wet, you need to keep your dog off of there. And as a precaution, I would suggest maybe even doing it for the rest of that day. So you spray it on a fine day. The leaf generally will be dry in about half an hour, maybe up to an hour. Um, but but if you are concerned, leave it the whole day before you allow your, your dog back on the area. Once those products have actually then absorbed into the plant and dried, um, the risk of any secondary poisoning or, or, or anything like that is greatly reduced. In fact, almost non-existent. But if the leaf is wet, there is a concern. Good on you, Nick. I hope that helps. Let's go to Broken Hill now because you're listening to Talk Back Gardening on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. And David is on the line from up at the Silver City. Good morning to you, David. You with us, David? Oh, we've, no, David's dropped out. Let's go to North Plimpton now. And I think Don is on the line. Good morning, Don. Oh, good morning. I'm in the garden enjoying it. It is beautiful. Uh, two weeks ago, I put in four Nelly Kelly passion vines along the fence, mm-hmm. uh, 2.4 metres apart. I hope that's reasonable spacing. But the key questions I have, uh, well, should I allow them to grow vertically before I let the laterals extend and trim the laterals as it grows vertically? And once it's reached the fence height, Trim, trim the top and let the verticals, laterals go out? Well, look, I, I would actually... Be, so I assume you've got a... a they're growing on a fence and you've got some sort of framework that you're, you're actually going to be training them to. Is that correct? Yes, yes the framework is high tensile fencing wire, uh-huh. uh, 350 millimetres apart. And again, I'm not sure if that's too far apart. No, look, yeah, yeah, your Nelly Kelly vines are actually pretty vigorous, and um, yep. um, and um, 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 you said you planted four, and you've got them two point four meters apart. You're going to have a very, very healthy um, oh, um, hedge by the time they get established. What I what you need to sort of look at doing is it's important that you train those lower laterals to the lower part of that mesh very early on, because right. the plant will want to continue to grow up. It'll want to continue to grow yes. to the light, and so if you don't control those. Or, 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 or train, if you like, those laterals to the lower actual parts of that mesh um, in the first instance, what will happen is it will want to shoot up to the stars and you'll have a bare mesh mm. at the bottom and you'll have all the growth at the top. So, right. so as it's growing, you do obviously do require a, um, a, a shoot that, that is going upwards, but you, it's important that if you've got some side shoots that you can control or control those laterals going out and then you can train them along those wires. And then as they grow up, you can then train them to the next wire as it's going up. So okay. it's really important that, yes, you've, you've sort of got to look at it and, and know that yeah, it, it's going to want to grow up. But it's important that you just get those lower ones first. And as it grows, train them out as it reaches those wires, if that makes sense, to ensure that you've got good coverage down lower. Um, The other thing you really need to be careful um, as well is that um, um, your grafted passion fruits can sucker if there is root damage that occurs. So if you've planted them in a bed where you're going to be planting other plants in front of them and then you'll potentially be digging in that bed to plant them, you need to be just aware that um, if you disturb those roots, you can get some suckering that occurs from the actual rootstock. So. Yeah, so just make sure that you're very, very careful about where you're actually planting because... 
often, and particularly in Ellie Kelly's, a graft that onto a banana passion fruit, which is extremely vigorous, um, um, and will, will you'll have many many suckers that come through, and you don't want that to occur if you can avoid it. Mm. Oh sure. Well, really, what would have been the ideal centres spacing for the plants? Well, look, um, um, what uh, your total length there is what something like eight or ten metres, is it? Is that ten metres? It's yes, ten metres. Right, yes, it's ten metres. Right. It's there. Yeah, you probably only probably needed a couple to be honest to do that. Oh, so, <laughs> oh, <fair laughs> overplanted, Don. <laughs> but, but going for broke. <laughs> yeah, look, put, put it this way: you're going to be supplying the neighbourhood with passion fruit. <laughs> good so on you, good Don. To me. Thank you very much. Thank you for very your call. much. That's terrific. Bye-bye. It's a very common mistake, isn't it, Brett Draper? We, people sort of often can't envisage how plants are going to look when they actually get to uh, full size. And the most common gardening mistake is overplanting, isn't a- it? Absolutely. And and passion fruits in particular can be in the right spot can be very very vigorous. Probably, you know, ultimately in five years' time, um, it will. Yeah, it, I hope it's very strong mesh that has got. Is all I can say because <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> time will tell, Don. Time Time will tell. Well, he's back. Uh, David from Broken Hill is on the line for you, Brett. Good morning, David. Uh, good morning. What's your question for Brett, please? Uh, my question is uh, I have a problem with African black beetle in the lawn. Um, mm. I've been treating it with Bathroid. And um, the little devils are just thriving, partying. Um, yeah, I'd like to know what I can do. Right, David. Yeah, well, look, African black beetle can be can be quite a, a problem and can be hard to control. Um, the thing will be is by the time you actually see the black beetle, um, it's actually meant or actually means that it's really too late because the actual uh, beetles themselves are at the end of their life cycle. Okay, so what what happens is the the beetles lay eggs and those eggs in the soil develop into a curl grub, a white curl grub, and the curl grub actually eats the roots of the lawn. Um, and yep. they can they can move into garden beds as well. Um, and there's been lots of people that have had issues with them mm. going into raised garden beds, um, particularly over the winter months because they're warmer. But those curl grub chomp away at the lawn and then develop into a black beetle. So by the time you're seeing the black beetle, um, it, it is actually a little bit late. Now, Bathroid is actually a a, a a pretty good comprehensive sort of product, but it only controls the actual black beetle. It doesn't control the larvae. You may need to look at changing up to a product which will control the larvae and break that life cycle. Mm. So you've probably got multiple generations happening here. You've probably got some eggs that are laid in the soil. You will have had some that have hatched into curl grub and then you will have got some which you're seeing at the moment as actual black beetles. So there's several products on the market, but there is, um, and I'm just trying to um, think of the actual product that's there. There's a a product um, that is, um, um, I think it's called Complete uh, Lawn Grub Control or something along those lines. But Yates Yates have actually put it out, but it's a new technology. The technology is called Acceleprin, and the Acceleprin actually... Um, is a product which will last um, up to six months in the area, but it breaks the life cycle of the actual um, beetle um, and the grub that are there. So um, um, I would suggest maybe um, going to your local uh, nursery or garden centre and looking for that particular product. Um, It is um, um, not a cheap product by any means, but it is very, very effective at actually um, breaking the life cycle um, that's on there. The other thing that you'll find as well that with your um, African black beetle, they are often attracted to light. So if you've at night, they're nocturnal. 
um, or they come out at night if you like. So if you've got an area where you have lots of lights on outside um, or you've got a street light, for instance, if, you, if you're in a, uh, in a town, for instance, that's over your lawn, they can often come in and target your lawn because of that because they're actually attracted to the light. So if you've got lots of lights on at night, maybe just turn the lights off and see whether that helps to detract them from coming into your, your area. Thanks for the call, David, and hope that helps. Let's go to Moonta now. Um, Brett and Justine is on the line. Good morning to you, Justine. What's it look like? What's it looking like in Moonta this morning? Well, actually, I'm not in Moonta now. Oh, I'm in the beautiful. I'm in the beautiful Clare Valley. Oh, how about that? But That's I, a pretty hard I, luck I, for you. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I do live in Moonta, so Moonta was beautiful and sunny this morning. So yeah, and and again, beautiful and sunny in Clare. Excellent. Now, your question for Brett this morning, Justine. Um, I want to plant some uh, something in containers on on the concrete to give me for a little bit of shade and also for some privacy. Okay. Um, so I'm looking at sort of a trough style of planter. Yes. Um, and I can probably put two or three in that area along the edge of the concrete. So I want to create like a bit of a screening. A bit of a screening. Um, how big a trough? Yeah. How big a trough are you thinking, or can you fit in? Um, well, I'm not sure how big they go, actually, but something along, I'd probably say, three foot wide or uh, four foot wide, maybe. Okay, so if, you, if you're looking at, you know, p- purchasing an off-the-shelf sort of trough, um, I think, you know, it, um, domestically, most of the ones, the large ones that are available are about a, a metre wa- um, long, if you like, and about 80 or so centimetres um, in width yep. and depth. Yep. Um, and so you're wanting to get up to hopefully a couple of metres. Is that what you're wanting to do? Or... Yeah, or just or just under, so around the five-foot mark. Right. I mean, I can trim anything that grows. If it's going to grow high, I can certainly trim. I was sort of thinking of lily pillies. Um, yeah. I don't like fetinias. I don't like the smell of the flower. Yeah, well, you fit, you fit, look, your fetinia does make a wonderful hedge, but it will, it will be too vigorous um, to grow yeah. um, in, in a pot like that. There is a wonderful lily pilly variety on the market called Backyard Bliss. Um, yeah. And your Backyard Bliss um, is a narrow, upright variety. And in the ground, normally, it would only grow to a maximum of three to four metres once established, but it will only grow mm-hmm. about a metre wide. Um, and the other advantage with your backyard bliss is that it's psyllid resistant. So the calls that we had earlier with the little p- yeah, the, the pimples and the bumps and the leaves, mm. it doesn't <laughs> actually get the psyllid. So you don't have that issue where you have to to prune out um, the uh, the psyllid um, once you um, once they actually grow. Mm. Um, so yeah. yeah, and they are look they are very hardy. It's really important that you do in these tubs make sure that there is good drainage because the Achilles heel of any plant in a pot is poor drainage. So when you've got a large tub like that, make sure there's some really good drainage holes in the bottom and look at putting something in the bottom like a gravel or some sort of aggregate that means that um, when you put the soil in, it won't block up those um, drainage holes over a period of time. Um, yeah. And if you use a nice premium uh, potting soil, um, when you actually are, are potting them on, um, that would also be um, uh, very helpful um, because it'll have a slow-release fertiliser in there which will help get them established. But, yeah, maybe look at the Backyard Bliss Lily Pelly. There you go, okay. Justine. Try that out. And thank you for your call. Enjoy this Clare Valley. What a great place to be on a sun, a sun, a sunny Saturday morning. Um, Gail from Salisbury Heights says, encourage magpies into your garden who will forage for black beetles and will help control them, says Gail. So there's a tip for mm, you. They, they do, actually. And, and one of the good things with that is if you water the, the lawn area heavily, they need to come to the surface for ah. air and it will bring them up. And uh, But... 
the the magpies actually target the the larvae, not the black beetles as much. So it's the and that's what you want, isn't and it? And that's what you want. But if after watering, it brings them up to the surface. Good tip, Gail. Thank you very much for that. Going back to Tupelo Grove, um, Jamie, the Hills landscaper says Tupelo Grove is certainly a jewel in the crown of the nursery industry. Keep up the good, great work, Robin, and to your amazing staff. And here's a question: I reckon I can answer, Brett. What are the white flowering hedges with new red leaf growth everywhere at the moment? They are fertinias and they are flowering magnificently at the moment. And that flush of red that they get on the tips at this time of the year is also really spectacular, isn't it? It is spectacular. And to think that you wouldn't expect that the new growth would be so red because you, the established yeah. growth then turns that lovely dark it lush does, green. doesn't it? But the flowers on them are very spectacular at the moment as well. They sure are. And Waldo from Strathalbans texted in as well and says, great show, guys. Really enjoying this morning's program. So you're making people very happy today, Brett Draper. Let's go back to the calls. Raylene is on the line from the Barossa. Good morning, Raylene. Good morning. I've just planted a baronia, brown baronia, in a pot with premium potting mix. And then a couple of days later, it, it's sprung to mind that they don't like fertilizer. Well, natives don't like a lot of fertilizer, mm. and I'm wondering whether I've done the wrong thing. Look, um, uh, probably not, um, because the premium potting soil is only likely to have a slow-release fertilizer that's in there. What the natives don't like is phosphorus. So the phosphorus in that slow-release fertilizer is likely to be pretty low, um, and I don't think that's going to cause a problem for your baronia. Have you grown baronias before? No, never, and I've always dreamt of having one. Oh, they have the most heavenly-scented flowers, and in fact we've had some yeah. in the garden centre during the week, and they really are spectacular. Mm. Um, so, yes. look, the most important thing that in that pot that you've got is that you've got good drainage because they do not like wet feet. Yes, good drainage. So if you've got some nice good drainage in the pot, I think the premium potting sort that you've potted in there will be fine. I don't think that's going to cause an issue at all. Good on you, oh, Raylene. Thank you very much. I'd hate to kill it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he heaven help you. I I I'm sure you won't. And enjoy that begonia. Appreciate your call, Raylene. Um, now, just quickly away, very quickly away from gardening, just for a second, um, Brett, because earlier in breakfast we were talking about the dolphin that was stuck down at the uh, mouth of the Torrens down at the beach yesterday, and all's ended well. He's off and out on the high tide and out in the uh, golf waters again. But there's another wildlife incident apparently down on the coast. This mm. time it's a long-nosed fur seal. Um, apparently it's entangled under Brighton Jetty at the moment. Now, Aaron Mercado, who we were talking to earlier, he's from the Australian Marine Wildlife Research and Rescue Organisation, is onto it. He says the seal is going to be taken out of the water and tranquilised uh, and is just advising people at the moment not to be alarmed. It's under control. The experts are there and they're helping out this long-nosed fur seal down underneath the Brighton jetty. Let's keep going with the calls, Bress, uh, to Rosalind now at Glenside. Good morning, Rosalind. Good morning. I have a question about an echium plant. Mm -hmm. About seven years ago, I got two plants. One would have blue flowers. It grew straight up and then after one year died off. But the other plant with the pink flowers grew and grew and now seven years later it's about two metres high and about three metres wide it's spread. But just in the last year about oh, almost a fifth of it now has died off and there's dead wood. Hmm. And what I'm wondering is, um, is it going to last much longer or is it better, say, by autumn to cut the whole thing down because underneath this bush 
uh, several little new ecum, and of course they're not going to be able to grow up unless I get the old one out. And that's exactly what I was going to ask you, because ecums are absolutely stunning and they're looking beautiful um, in gardens at the moment, but they they have a lifespan. Um, yes. And it's somewhere between five to ten years, but they do have a lifespan because they do become very woody, um, and um, and as a result of that, they do die um, and or t- continue to die back, and eventually will die completely. But before they yes. do that, they often set new seed or have new plants that come up underneath mm. in the same area. So what you're what you're thinking about pruning it back and allowing those new plants to come through is absolutely the correct thing that you should be doing. Um, so enjoy if you've got flowers on the on the part of the plant that's still alive at the moment but if there's any part of that plant which has already lost its leaves and and on that woody part I would be removing that now because the more light that you can allow in to those new little plants coming through the less time it will take for them to establish um, which means that you won't have as big a hole to fill when you end up removing the, the whole original plant. Yeah and so well the pink flowers are almost gone now so Certainly by autumn, then, is it worth taking the whole of the old one out then and Definitely. letting the new one? Yeah, absolutely. Remo- remove all of that and allow those new plants to come through. And that would also be a good time because often you get clusters of these little plants. If you needed to then um, uh, transplant some, for instance, you could actually then transplant them in autumn as well. Thank you, Rosalind, and good luck with your echium. It sounds like it's a, a self-perpetuating plant that's Likely to do well if you do the right things. Good advice, Brett. Phillips just texted it. He says, this gardening guy is very good. (laughs) (laughs) So you've got plenty of fans out there, Brett Draper. We are getting calls and texts from all over the state this morning. We've had some from Air Peninsula. Uh, We've already had one call from Broken Hill. We're going right back to Broken Hill now because Robin's on the line. Hello, Robin. Uh, Good morning. How are you today? Well, indeed. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. What's your question for Brett? Okay, it's a bit of a it's a follow up from uh, when Brett was talking to the gentleman about the black beetle, mm-hmm. um, and he said it it originates from a white curl grub. I actually have black grubs that curl up um, into a ball, but obviously they flatten out if they're crawling out onto like the cement. Is that the is that still a part of of the uh, lawn beetle, or is that a different grub? So are these actual Grubs themselves, or are they some, uh, or are they um, a, a little beetle that curls? Well, oh yeah, good question. I guess I don't know that. And okay. and um, even though uh, we like I've treated the lawn, obviously not with this product you've just talked about, and um, I'm certainly going to give that a go. But um, these these little grubs, they they just curl up. Like if you touch them, they curl up. Um, but when they come out and like when we did treat the lawn, they come out of the lawn and um, do die. But um, I just wondered whether it was a whether mm. we're treating so- well, something that's not a black beetle. Well, no. Look, the, you, normally your the curl grubs from the African black beetle generally are are, are a white or a creamy colour, and they generally yeah. have an an, um, an orange spot on their head, but their tail can be black. So, um, um, but these are black all over is, is they're black all over. So if they are a type of larvae, um, um, they'll, um, and they've, and the other thing with the, the larvae is that they generally have six legs, which are at the front of the body. Um, um, so you've got the front of the body where you've got the orange head, you've got six legs, and then you have the actual grub with a black tail. Um, Mm -hmm. um, now if what you've got, 
is has a similar makeup to that. It's a larvae of some sort of uh, beetle of some kind, um, and without yep. seeing it, it's a little bit hard to know. And, oh, yes. And there's so many. I mean, I'm not an entomologist. There's so many um, insects <laughs> that are out there. But if they are a grub, more than likely they probably will be feeding on the root zone of the plant as well. And mm. your treatments that you use for controlling your um, uh, curl grub or lawn beetle larvae and will not distinguish between um, bugs it will, or, or grubs. It will kill all of the grubs that are actually um, in the area. Um, okay. The other thing, if it's in a lawn, you can get um, um, what um, uh, in some cases um, they call it an army worm, which is a more, mm. it's a little bit longer. How long are these grubs um, that you've got? Oh, probably, you know, ask me that. Um, um, I would say they're about half a centimetre. Okay, so, a the, centimeter. Yeah, so they're, yeah, not, they're not very long, are they, really? No. No, no okay. So it's, it's not likely to be armyworm then. So, look, it's a little bit hard. Do you have a good garden centre or someone um, uh, in the area that might be able to identify them? It might be an idea to pop some into a plastic bag or uh, container and take them yeah. along and have a look because I'm sure you won't be the only one that's got the problem and it would be really nice mm-hmm. to get that identified because once you get that identified, you then know how to treat it. Treat it, yep. Yeah, that yep. makes sense, yep. Okay. Good, good luck right. with that, Robin, yeah. and thank you for your call from Broken Hill this morning. Love to, lovely to have you on the program. Well, let's go to Port Pirie now, Brett, because Mark's on the line from up in uh, Port Pirie. Good morning, Mark. Uh, yeah, yeah, good morning. What's your question for Brett? Uh, yeah, I don't know if you can help me or not, but yeah, I've got a lot of roses um, out in my front yard, and I've got two questions to tell them that. And the first question is... Um, What's the best time to to water the roses in the morning or or at afternoon or afternoon. at night? And, all, yeah. and also another question is, and how many days I should water them every day or every two days or what? Okay, so yeah, Mark. So it's it's really going to depend on how long the roses have been established for and what your soil type is like. But in general terms. Um, with watering with your roses, um, and this is, goes for most plants, the best time generally to water is in the morning, um, ideally in the morning, and it's particularly important with roses um, um, that when you water them that you don't water them overhead, you water them at ground level because you don't want any excess moisture on the leaves which will then potentially create fungal problems like black spot, for instance. So if you were to water them in the morning and not overhead, um, that would be ideal. Now, in terms of um, how often and how much water, it re- that really comes back to what sort of soil type that you, you have. Um, but what I would suggest that an established rose um, itself um, in normal conditions is going to require a good drink once a week and everyone says well what's a good drink well again that comes a little bit back to your soil but what you're wanting to do is apply a thorough deep soak to the area and and if for instance if you're using drippers it's important to know how many litres an hour your drippers put out but you really want to be applying somewhere between sort of um, maybe 20 to 40 litres per rose bush, which is, you know, um, uh, somewhere between two to four bucketfuls if you want to put it in a quantity once a week in normal conditions. But the other thing that I would suggest, it's a very good idea, is to mulch the ground underneath because mulching the ground, as we were talking with Robin earlier, is a really good thing to do. By, by mulching the ground, it will actually help to retain the moisture that's there but also help to keep um, um, uh, weeds down but it also means that the moisture that's in the soil will actually last longer. So it's a really good idea to actually mulch at the same time. 
And Brett Draper, I've got to say, it's been a terrific program this morning. Just really enjoyed your company and clearly from the text line and all of the questions that we've got. We haven't got through them all and I apologise for that. We've had more calls than we can get to and the texts just keep coming in. But uh, final words to you, Brett Draper, this Saturday morning. Well, look, I'd like to say thank you very much for the opportunity, Lee. It's been wonderful. It's been a wonderful morning and uh, I hope everyone has a wonderful day out in the garden. And until next week, good gardening.